So I noted a kind of lack of enthusiasm for the uh, thanks be to God at the end of the first reading. And I know there was quite a lack of enthusiasm to even read it by Jan. She tried to get out of it. And I went, no, you will read it. This is important. It's not a great story. It's a story uh, that we would rather not hear. That one of the great people of the Bible, David, could behave that badly. And yet there it is. A story of treachery and betrayal uh, at every level of somebody who was great, who had achieved so much, uh, who made one bad decision that led to a whole lot of other bad decisions. And it's important that it's there because that's how people behave. That's how the world is. And if we look around the world, we can see those kind of things happening all the time. And we can get incredibly despondent. I often feel hopeless and despondent as I look around. I look around and I wonder where is any hope in all of this. Just as when you hear that story, you wonder where is the hope in any of this. I look at it all and I wonder... What is it we can do? The social issues around us just seem so huge. And the response of this country and every country is so limited by ideology. On a worldwide scale, the political price to do anything about global warming is just too high. And nothing real happens, meeting after meeting. And I wonder what kind of world we will leave my children and if I am lucky to have any my grandchildren. In our part of the world, we seem trapped into thinking that the rich should get richer, because that's how it should be. And it doesn't matter that the poor and the middle class just get poorer, because it's important that the rich should get richer. And the price we might pay that those who work full-time might have enough to thrive on just seems too high. We believe the propaganda that to pay people enough to thrive in their jobs will just cost jobs, despite all the evidence saying the exact opposite. We're willing to see our social services turned over to profit-making corporations. And around the world, violence grows. Religious extremism grows. Christian, Hindu, Muslim. Huge things are happening And we feel powerless. I feel powerless. And I wonder, as the psalmist wonder, where is God in all of this? There seems to be no way forward. One of the great things about the psalms is that they offer us a way of articulating, of saying what we feel. It's one of the reasons why the church has always prayed the psalms. They offer us a way to say, to pray, how we feel about God, about the world, about those we live with, about ourselves. A way of praying the positive stuff and, in today's psalm, the negative stuff. And sometimes the psalms are pretty brutal, like when we wish that the children of those people over there, their heads are dashed against the rocks. We think, oh, that's a bit harsh. But actually, sometimes that's exactly how we feel. 
and to pray it is actually a good thing. Because if you pray it, you can move beyond it and hear God's words of life to you. But if you bottle it up and pretend you're not thinking that, that's when trouble starts. Because those thoughts, those emotions are still bubbling away inside you. The Psalms are important because they, because they give legitimacy to our feelings. They help us acknowledge those feelings and to really feel them. Which isn't something, in my experience, most of us are good at. We're better at kind of thinking we can feel them and sometimes maybe being able to name them. But, you know, we're rational people so we should move on. But actually, our emotions are at the core of who we are. And we need a way of acknowledging them and of feeling them. And the Psalms offer us that. And so on this morning, we heard the psalmist lament. Now, we're actually supposed to say the psalm after the Old Testament reading. It's a response to the reading, not a precursor. And so if we had had the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah, I don't know, he keeps getting cut out of the title there, but he's quite an important figure. And uh, then we would have had Psalm 14, which is a lament about how people are behaving. It's a response to that reading. Well, it would have been our response. Powerful people in his time behaved badly, with little care for the poor or for others. Powerful people in the time of Jesus behaved badly, with little care for the poor or for others. Powerful people in our time behaved badly, with little care for the poor or for others. Unfortunately, power does corrupt. And so the psalmist lays out our response to that and helps us feel our anger and our lament about that. But then, with Nathan, who will come and visit David in the not-too-distant future, maybe even be in next week's reading, you can never tell if the lecture you write is, so I'm not going to take that for granted, but you'd hope it is. We're invited to have a bigger vision, to not get sucked in by our despondency, not get sucked in by our small vision. We are invited to have a bigger vision and to realise that God does care. Which is what the reading from Ephesians is all about. It's all about having a bigger vision of God. In the passage we heard this morning, it begins by stating that any exercise of power and authority, which the writer to the Ephesians describes as fatherhood, must be based on the way God is. It's interesting how often we flip that around. We kind of look at our world and we say, this is how God operates. Without actually thinking, maybe God doesn't operate that way and maybe we should be operating in a different way. Throughout our history, we keep doing that. We keep describing God in our image. And the writer of the Ephesians is saying, it's the other way around. We need to be living in the image of God. If you want to exercise power and authority, it needs to be based on the way that God is. So how do we know the way that God is? Well, that relies on the answer to the question, the question that I keep asking and have been asking for about three and a half years. Who is God? Who is God for us? What image of God is important for you? What words do you use to describe God? 
And how does the answer to that question, who is God, influence how you see yourselves and how we live our lives? As I've said before, the Gospels are our primary means of understanding who is God. They were told to help us understand who Christ is, and through Christ to understand who God is. They are the starting point for our understanding who is God. And in doing so, we begin to understand the way that God is inviting us to see ourselves and how we might live our lives. Now in John's Gospel, the Gospel we're going to spend the next four or five weeks reading, chapter 6, a key element to that is the use of signs, which again was talked about in this morning's reading. Now too often we get stuck on the signs themselves. Some of us kind of wonder, did they happen exactly that way? It doesn't seem very scientific, it doesn't make much sense in our modern world. Surely there's some other explanation When we do that, and those are fair questions, I'm not saying we shouldn't ask those kind of questions, but the danger of those questions is we then focus on the sign rather than what the sign is pointing to. It's kind of like going to a signpost which says this is Church Street and having a really big discussion about that signpost and the sign and never actually going to Church Street. The point of the miracles in John's Gospel was to point to something else. And when we get stuck on the miracle, we ignore the fact that we're actually not supposed to get stuck on the miracle. It's a signpost. We're supposed to go somewhere else with it. So, this morning we heard two stories. The feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. Now they are exactly the two stories we might have heard last week from Mark in that order, except the lectionary writers decided that we would miss those out. So we had the little piece before the feeding of the 5,000, and then the healing of the person at Gennesaret, which comes after the Jesus walks on water. And for some reason, the lectionary writers just thought they'd miss those two stories out. Now I can kind of understand it, but it's a pity they did that. Because if we'd heard Mark's version last week and then John's version this week, we would have been able to compare them and see the differences. And there are differences. They're different writers trying to do different things with their stories. So what does John do that's different? Well, he fills them with echoes of the Exodus story. So unlike Mark, John has his story set at the Passover. It was near the Passover. It's set in the wilderness, and he has bread. Well, in the wilderness, the Israelites had manna, which God offered them. The water of the crossing with the disciples on it echoes the safe crossing of both the Red Sea as they crossed, as they trekked into the wilderness, and the Jordan as they trekked out of the wilderness and into the promised land. There are echoes, too, of the Elijah story, whose return will bring about the Messianic age through the five barley loaves. The echo is the five barley loaves. Now, it's tempting to try to explain away the mystery of this story, especially the feeding of the 5,000. And we were warned in our, some of our, well, some of the people I read warned me not to talk about the stone soup story as a way of understanding the feeding of the 5,000. 
And I'm sure you've even heard sermons about the stone soup. And the danger, the stone soup, the stone soup is a great story. It's a great story about people gathering and being generous. And maybe the people were generous with each other. But the point of it is that we then miss the, where the, the story is pointing to. And the story here is pointing to not that people were generous with each other, but that God was generous. God was amazingly generous. That with five barley loaves and two fish, all these people were fed through God's generosity. Now we can get hung up on the science of that, or we can just put the science to one side and say, this is a story about God's generosity. God is generous. Abundantly generous. In fact, those people didn't ask to be fed, and still Jesus fed them. And Jesus didn't ask for payment for anything. Didn't ask for payment for healing, didn't ask payment for teaching, which is what rabbis did and healers did. You got healed, you paid, kind of like going to the doctor today. You want to be taught by someone, you paid, kind of like going to a seminar today. Jesus did it all for nothing. It's all freely given, abundantly given, because that's the nature of God. And at other times, we might get hung up about the miracle of walking on water. Did he really do it? Were they really so close to the shore that he'd already walked around and met them there? Were there little walking stones that he knew about that was close to the boat? Again, when we do that, we miss the point of the story. Now, it's okay to have all those questions, but you've got to move away from the signpost and look to where the signpost is pointing. And the point of the story is that Jesus is the one who masters the perils of the deep. Last, just over a week ago, when we were in Samoa, we did a little scuba diving around one of the coral reefs. And I thought I was the only one nervous whenever we moved away from the coral reef and it just got really deep. I like to kind of have a bit of coral reef under me and occasionally it was just straight down and you just look, that was way deep. My little heart was pumping. Ugh, it was horrible. And the flippers didn't, they were too big, so I didn't have flippers, so I was kind of moving very slowly. And we got back, and my eldest daughter said, I hated it when we had to swim out from the coral reef. Look down in that deep, it was horrible. I was so afraid. The perils of the deep. Jesus is the one who masters those perils. Jesus is the one who brings peace and hope in the face of those perils. And as soon as Jesus is on the boat, they're on hard land. He is their hard land. Now again, there are echoes of the Exodus story in the name that he uses, I Am. It is the name God used at the beginning of the Exodus story when God revealed himself to Moses. I am who I am. It's a deliberate echo. And it also has echoes of the creation story where the spirit hovered over the deep, bringing order and bringing all into being. Now these are stories designed to open our eyes to the reality of God present in Jesus, who is present in the lives of the readers as the risen Christ, who is present in our lives as the risen Christ, a God of abundant generosity, generosity that is unasked for, freely given, 
a God who meets us in our deepest fears and brings solid ground, brings us to the solid ground of hope and life. But, as I said at the beginning, and as that first reading reminds us, we live in a world that is not so filled with generosity, with so many protecting and claiming what is theirs, or at least what they think is theirs, and so many aspiring for more. We live in a world so beset with problems it would be easy to give in to hopelessness and despair, to give in to violence and to retribution, as so many people have. And that was the danger for the disciples, and it was the danger for Jesus as well. Last week, if we had heard the two stories that we heard today from John, we would have heard Mark's second dinner story. Now, the problem with the way that we read our Bibles is we break up all these gospel stories into nice little readable chunks, which means we never pay attention to what's around them and how the flow of the story works. We never read Mark in one hit. But if you did, you would note that just before the feeding of the 5,000 story was the reading we heard the previous week. Herod's dinner. And these two dinners are placed side by side, not because that's how they happened in history, but because Mark wanted to contrast one dinner with another. Herod's meal with Jesus' meal. Because in that contrast, you see how God operates. So we have Herod's dinner, which was a debauched affair, thrown to impress the powerful, filled with wild and exaggerated promises, promises that Herod had no authority to keep. He promised half his kingdom. His kingdom wasn't his to offer. It was Caesar's. He only had it because Caesar could said he could have it. And at some point, a few years later, Caesar said, yeah, actually, I don't think you should have it anymore. I'm going to give it to your brother. You can go and live in Gaul for the rest of your life. And that was the end of that. All of that was in the power of Caesar. And it is filled with John's head, presented on a platter. In contrast to that, we have Jesus. And all eyes are on Jesus to see what he will do in response to his cousin's death. Will he call for the retribution that honour dictates? Jesus, surrounded by those who had come to see and hear, those who had lost their land, lost honour and hope, those who struggled to live day by day because of the poverty, those who longed to be rid of Rome, of Herod, of the high priests, those who longed for a Messiah who would lead them to victory, and the restoration of their land and the way of God. And they were hungry, and Jesus knew that. And so Jesus meets them with generosity and love and feeds them. And he becomes the good shepherd of the good shepherd tradition, offering another way, a way of non-violence, a way of generosity and love for all, the way of the new community. This Sunday is Social Service Sunday, and I talked a little bit about that in the pew sheet. It's a Sunday where we're invited to not just give thanks for, and maybe a bit of money to the work of Anglican Care, but we're also invited 
to respond to God's invitation to be God's Anglican people in this place. It's a Sunday where we can take time to grow in our awareness that we are that we are immersed in God's generosity, that we are sustained and shaped by that generosity, generosity that motivates us to service, to imitate that generosity. It's a Sunday where we can take time to deeply belong to each other so that how we are at St George's offers a vision that is bigger than anyone else offers, a vision of God's new community, which is itself missional where we become a testimony in the way we treat each other and how we live our lives to God's love and generosity. So it's a day to be reminded not only of the work of Hodson House and Whanau Aroha, but also our work through Centrepoint and our connections with the Miraval Community Centre. But it's also a day where we can again hear the invitation to give our best for the least in the communities of Gate Pa, Rehi Village, Pais Pa and Miraval. And to know that this is not a long term, that this is a long term thing. It's not an easy thing, and that to do it, we need to be faithful. To we do it to be faithful to all who have gone before us in this place, faithful to who God calls us to be as God's Anglican people. I began this morning with my response both to that reading of David and Bathsheba and Uriah my own sense of helplessness and powerlessness and outrage really at what's happening in our world and my sense of not being able to do anything about that. I could give in to that. But the psalm invites me to name those feelings and to move beyond them. And our reading from Ephesians and our gospel story offer a bigger vision. A vision of a God who is infinitely generous, who loves without bounds, and invites me to be a person who is also infinitely generous and loves without bounds. And maybe it won't change much, but it'll be a little change. And because a small group of people in Israel 2,000 years ago, against all the odds, started to be as generous as Jesus had been generous, and to love just as Jesus had loved, they changed the world. And we are invited to join in that ongoing revolution, despite all the evidence. So let us think then about how we might see God's abundant, generous love at work in our community. And how we are invited to join in that, to change the world.